Hi, everybody. This is Andrew Bray. I am not only one of the sound editors for the Rethinking Learning podcast, but I am also your host, Barbara Bray's son. So, Mom, what is it that you're really excited about? <laughs> well, I'm excited about my new book, and it's probably launched by now. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. I guess it depends it, how fast I edit your podcast. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone, I am so lucky to have Andrew help me. It's been it's that's it's been my why, really, is yeah. having the most wonderful family and also realizing that if you don't live on purpose, you're just living as it happens. It's not as much fun. And so this podcast has really helped me with the stories. And so you've made those stories together and you call it? Define Your Why. And it also is, the subtitle is Own Your Story So You Can Live and Learn on Purpose. That's great. So yes, it is coming out on February 17th. And uh, until then, people can still order the book on pre-order. How will people find the book? It's um, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash define your why hyphen book, all lowercase. Well, folks, I, I'm really excited for folks to read my mother's book, but I'm also glad that you're listening right now to the podcast. Speaking of which, stay tuned so you get to listen to a conversation with Barbara Bray as she speaks with Carissa Duran. Welcome to the Rethinking Learning Podcast. I'm Barbara Bray, and this is where I have conversations on learning with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and difference makers. Well, I'm really excited today. I met someone at a recent conference, and I was just blown away. And I, I'm, I'm just really excited to have Carissa Duran here. Hi, Carissa. Hi, Barbara. When you went up there, I, we were at the Aurora Institute that used to be the Ina Call, and I saw you. I just said, I have to meet you. So I'm going to just tell a little bit about you first. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. It's Carissa Duran. She's a teacher, an ELD, literacy, ed tech instructional coach, and a testing coordinator at Del Lago Academy in the Escondido Union High School District in the San Diego, California area. Is that all you do? That, yep. I'm a little bit of a hat rack. <laughs> <laughs> and you're also a fellow Californian. I, I love it. I'm so glad that I finally get to talk. Yes. Uh, you know, when I met you at the Aurora Institute, it was called Ina Call. And right after your speech, they changed it. They did. I actually think that I'm the last INACL teacher of the year because my award says INACL and then they changed their name. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me tell you what they, they gave you an award, 2019 Personalized Learning Teacher of the Year. That's pretty darn cool. Yes, it's quite an honor. Oh, it was amazing. So I'm, and then after we got to talk a little bit and I said, oh, we got to have you on my show. And so, so glad you're here today. Me too. I'm excited for our conversation. Thank you. Well, I always like people to start on my podcast about their background. Can you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a California native. I was born and raised in California. Um, I was born in Orange County, 
grew up mostly in Riverside County. And then now I live out here in San Diego County where I also um, teach. So Southern California, sort of my stomping ground. I'm familiar with the whole area. I did spend a few years living in Oregon right after my first year of college and then returned back to Southern California to um, get my degrees at UC Riverside. Oh, that's a great school. Absolutely is. I love them. (laughs) I know. That's really cool. So tell me a little bit about growing up there, you know, because it's it's a very diverse population. It's also, I've done some work with Riverside County and some of the uh, San Bernardino and few, and uh, the people are amazing down there. What was it like growing up? Uh, well, I am the seventh of nine children. Um, we were raised, oh. <laughs> that's usually the reaction I get. Um, we were raised by my mom and grew up in Riverside um, in one of the more disadvantaged neighborhoods. I grew up in the east side of Riverside. Growing up in the area really did expose me to a lot of um, diversity in my community, in my schools. Um, And then UC Riverside, of course, one of the most diverse universities in the country um, and definitely in the state, was really just the epitome of working with diverse cultures because I was able to get to know a lot of um, people from different backgrounds, both as an undergrad and as well as as a graduate there. Wow. Yeah, it is amazing area. Your mom had nine children and she raised all of you. (laughs) She sounds amazing. Definitely. She's a pretty cool woman. (laughs) What was it like for you to be a student there? I think, honestly, school for me was a bit of a place of privilege. And it's funny for me to say that because I used to think that I had no privilege at all. I grew up really poor. I'm a minority female um, from a single family home. Um, but I realized later in life that as a student, I was in some ways, I recently recounted the story of my first days in kindergarten. And when I struggled to sort of maintain my composure in recounting the story, I realized how significant the experience really was. Um, on my first day of kindergarten, I was terrified of the unknown. I was a puddle of tears and snot at the door of the classroom. Um, (laughs) and Mrs. Takanaga, um, my kindergarten teacher, she welcomed me in and gave me exactly what I needed. She gave me time. She let me hide under her desk for a full four hours until I was ready to come out. Um, and she made school feel really safe for me because the home was not a safe place for me. It was actually, uh, really important finding safety in school because she made it feel safe. I sort of went all in and I was really privileged because traditional school, more or less, came natural to me. Um, and being successful in school changed the entire trajectory of my life. Wow. She sounds like an amazing person. Like, you know, that's having you sit under the desk for four, <laughs> four hours, you said. That's really amazing because not everyone has that experience the first few days of school. It's really scary for a lot of people. And saying safety, you know, that's sad that you didn't feel safe at home. That must've been hard for your mom too, for your whole family. Right. Absolutely. For my whole family. But I, but because of that, I dug into school and I sort of staked my life on it and I was able to achieve success in school, which helped me out of a lot of the circumstances that I was facing, um, in my personal life. Wow. Well, that's, when you were a student, did you ever feel like you wanted to be a teacher because of Mrs. Takanaga? Um, I think that I was always sort of good at teaching other people. Um, you know, in school, oftentimes kids are paired up together and, and help each other through things. And so I was always really good at that. 
um, and I recognize teaching as a possibility in my future. Um, but I don't think as, as a student that it was really my goal. Um, at the time I was, you know, more, more exploratory in my future career pursuits. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I think I changed my major four or five times when I was in college. In fact, really what, what were you thinking of doing other, maybe one or two of those Uh, political science. That was a mistake. Um, (laughs) pre-law for a moment, um, business. Yeah. None of that worked out. (laughs) Wow. So what happened? What made you think about becoming a teacher then? I mean, was there an, an instance in your life that changed you or something? Yes, actually. I usually tell people that I became a teacher in part because of a dare and in part because of a tragedy. I had a friend who um, was trying to become a teacher and was having a hard time passing his credentialing exams, the the CSETs. Um, and when I teased him about it, he dared me to try one for myself because he says that they were just so hard. So I took him up on the dare and passed on my first try and thought to myself, you know, this is something I can seriously consider. Um, but I was still, you know, several months away from graduation. And so I didn't, I didn't really have it um, in the forefront of my mind. But then a couple months later, my brother's life was unexpectedly taken. And um, that was the last quarter at UCR. And I was a complete mess. I didn't even attempt to consider sort of my next steps. And my friend at the time reminded me of those test scores and encouraged me to apply to UCR's Graduate School of Education, which I did late. I think I, I contacted them a couple days after their deadline, but they were really gracious because of my circumstances and accepted my application. And I think that I interviewed the very next day <laughs> um, and got accepted. And, they, and then I started a couple months later to earn my credential and my master's in education. Wow. That must have been tough for you. Oh, I, you know, I, I have three sisters and I'm really close. I can't imagine losing a sibling. So I'm so sorry. Thank you. Which area did you decide on? Uh, you know, there's now that you're personalized learning, learning teacher of the year, there's all these different ways you can get there. What was your first, you know, your first assignment? Oh, I, um, I started teaching ninth grade English, um, right out of my grad program. Ninth grade English was my regular assignment, but then I was also um, given a release period to be the educational technology teacher on special assignment. Um, and then I was later assigned a seventh period class, um, a remediation class for students who had struggled to pass the California high school exit exam and were in danger of not graduating. Wow. So a lot of it was because they couldn't read? A lot of it, yes. Um, they were high school seniors, and most of them um, had reading test scores in the elementary school range. So they continued oh to gosh. not pass the exam after multiple attempts. You know, it just amazes me when I hear that, that there's, that, how, many, how many were you working with? Uh, about 12 or 13, I think. Oh, those poor kids. How did they get that far without having, you know, be reading at that level? That's amazing, isn't it? Um, it is. A little bit discouraging, <laughs> yes, that, that they a made it all the way to their senior year without, without the support. Well, how did you, let's kind of discuss how you help them, because that's like at the last moment, trying to change, you know, this mindset that they can't read, they can't succeed. What did you do? Right. I, I would actually say I probably didn't do much. I remember um, that when I was asked to teach this class, I was given, you know, a handbook 
um, of worksheets to go through to prepare them for the test. It was just your your typical test prep. And after probably the first day, I realized that that just wasn't going to work. Um, and I stopped using that handbook. And I'll be honest, I don't think I did a whole lot of teaching or content delivery. I think we did a lot more of just talking, just um, relationship building. And we talked about where they were and we talked about where their skills were. And we talked about the benefits of, of getting your high school diploma and what that could mean for their lives in that class, what we learned was that these students, they mostly had the capability of passing this test already. um, And maybe they didn't have um, the right mindset or the right motivation around it. And in, in just sort of talking with them um, one-on-one and in that small group and, and focusing on what it meant for their future, I think that they were just able to show us what they really already knew. So I don't think that I taught them anything. I think that maybe they taught me a little bit more about what it means to meet students' needs and just know them as human beings. Well, it sounds like you might have been the first person that really took the time to really build those relationships. I mean, I hope not, but maybe. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I mean, when you think about someone being passed from grade to grade and feeling you know, probably the grades were really poor, right? They probably didn't do very well. That they didn't have uh, Mrs. Takanaga. They didn't have someone like that, right? I mean, without her right in the beginning, I wonder if they had had someone like her, if that would have changed them. Right. And I think that really building those relationships um, with students and making sure the schools really see kids from the beginning and make them feel seen and feel known is so crucial to their success later on. You know, if you don't have that foundation um, and that, that foundational connection to school as a place that is really for you, I think it's a lot more difficult to be successful in the educational institution. I'm kind of, I mean, I would love to have been a fly on the wall watching you that first day with those <laughs> students, because that would have been kind of scary for me if I was trying to reach kids that had been told they were basically failures. Right. You know, and you you were able to probably follow a few of them, but how many, how long did you have them during the year? Uh, We were together just for a semester, right before they had to retake the test. And did they all pass or? I think they all passed except for a couple, but one of them I did follow a little bit after high school. We stayed in touch um, a couple of years after high school and he did end up um, going to a community college, and he was preparing to transfer to a four-year, um, the last that I had talked with him. So that was really exciting. Uh, I think those relationships, they matter so much when someone cares. Yes. It's something that's that's really interesting to me because I was thinking earlier about, you know, the sort of privilege I was talking about um, that I had within school, being naturally good at school, but I don't want to, um, you know, be mistaken um, I, I dug into school and I staked my life on it, but school as an institution really didn't do the same for me. Uh, much like these kids, I was absolutely invisible. Um, I was one of those, you know, teachers will say the under the radar kids, right? The ones that don't demand a lot of attention. Um, that was me. That's why school had, you know, my school had no idea that my family lost their home between eighth and ninth grade and that I started high school homeless. They had no idea. They didn't know that, you know, what was going on in my home when it was happening. So I was good at school. I was good at sort of making myself small enough to fit into that mold. 
but school itself didn't see me the way I saw it. And that's why I was even personally just wholly unprepared for life after high school. I actually ended up um, dropping out of college after my first year um, and moving out of state for three years before I realized what I had to do to be successful. And I had to learn how to navigate those systems on my own before I could return and get my degrees. So really all the, all the success that I had in school was how I saw school, not because of how school saw me. And I think that that's the same for those kids. I was just able to get through high school without the problems that they faced. Wow. But you faced some. Did they know that, did your school know that between seventh and eighth grade that you were homeless or did you? No, I don't think anybody knew. Um, I, I remember starting high school and walking to school a few miles from my sister's friend's house where we were able to kind of live in their living room um, until my mom was able to find an apartment a couple months later. Um, we just kind of popped around to other people's houses. But my school never knew. Nobody ever checked in on me and asked me how I was doing or noticed you know, anything that was off because I was able to play that game of school and just stay under the radar. And that's why I think it's just so important to build relationships with kids because when you're doing that intentionally, you don't have to wait for, for a student to tell you that something is happening because you're asking. But you see, if you have those relationships, if your teacher and the students have those relationships, the teacher notices something's wrong. And the problem is we, the way the curriculum is set up is that we have to cover it. And so I don't have time, which I hear a lot. That's so sad, though. Did you always teach uh, that class, uh, that summer class of helping with reading for kids that were in struggling? Uh, actually, after my first year at that school, I ended up in my second year coming to Del Lago Academy, and I've been there ever since. So um, at Del Lago, we don't have remediation classes. At Del Lago Academy, we believe that all of our students can achieve at high levels. So we have a single A through G pathway that every single student, every single scholar, regardless of their background, regardless of their academic skills, regardless of uh, you know any special designations for language or special needs, um, all of them take and pass the entire A through G pathway. Um, so I never had to teach another remediation class um, after moving schools because all of our students um, were able to take college preparatory classes and be successful in them. So is the academy, Del Lago Academy, uh, it's a high school? That's right. It's a public high school in Escondido. So you've been there some time now. A little bit of time, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's really great. So when you're talking about being the personalized learning teacher of the year, I think what they helped you is working in a place like this, that you can identify with the, you know, all the students have their own pathways, and they might be multiple pathways, right? Right. Well, we have a single pathway for our classes, but the support that we give to our students and, um, you know, the additional instruction or the additional support or the scaffolding that we give to our students is completely personalized. Um, We don't want a personalized pathway to mean that a student or their family can opt them out of, you know, a rigorous course. We want it it to give them access to the rigor of college preparatory courses. So, you know, we have honors for all and AP for all, and we support them through that. Uh, It's really, you know, I think back to Aurora Institute's definition of personalized learning, and it's really about enabling 
students to reach mastery by being flexible and by looking at their strengths and their needs and their interests. Um, and none of that has to do with, you know, um, putting them into different types of classes or making sure that they all have a pathway that they're doing by themselves. It's about the student voice and it's about um, empowering them to articulate what they need and signaling that they need something and then being committed to responding to that need. Um, so that's, you know, personalized learning for me. Oh, yes. So each of them have their their own pathway. Is the school set up where it's uh, single subjects or there's more like a thematic approach or is it around projects or? Use project-based learning in all of our classes. And we also take an interdisciplinary approach to teaching and learning. So our teacher teams are actually interdisciplinary teacher teams. They, you know, we'll have common preps with our science teacher and our, you know, art teacher that, that teach the same kids that we teach. So we share cohorts of scholars. Um, and in that way, we're able to build relationships and be really responsive as a team to meet the needs of our students. But it's really, you know, just coming around that commitment to designing with flexibility in mind. Um, I think a lot of people think that personalized learning is just giving every kid an iPad and letting them choose their own adventure through some, you know, app that builds, you know, adaptive curriculum for them. But technology is not personalized learning. And um, every student that we have um, is going to respond differently to the strategies that we're using and to the curriculum that we have. So all we have to do is make sure that we are committing to being flexible in how we teach and how we assess our students, you know, designing units or designing competencies that provide space for their voice and choice, and then fostering class culture that really saves space for those divergent views and committing to listening to our students and what they need. Okay. I want to go and visit. (laughs) It sounds perfect. We do get visitors a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's all about voice and choice and having, you know, owning their learning. And a lot of it, it's difficult for some teachers to let go. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, when you came to DeLago Academy, what type of training they did, I mean, and how you work as teams, it's just a whole different way of teaching, too. Right. Um, And we, I mean, we have some core values that we all started with. And one of the um, biggest things that we focus on at DeLago is culture. So not just our general school culture, but our staff culture and our shared commitment and our shared vision because mindset shifts is what is what causes pedagogical shifts. Um, so we did receive training in project-based learning from um, the Buck Institute of Education, and we received training in restorative practice, um, and we received training in cultural competence. But in the end, we're all just committed to educational justice. And, you know, something like personalized learning is an act of justice. I said this, you know, in my video at the Aurora Institute, um, when we think about things like injustice and racism and inequity, um, it, these things are really the othering of historically marginalized groups. It's the depersonalization of people of color, of people who are differently abled, of people from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds. So personalization is literally the opposite of that. It's seeing the whole person as a person and then responding to them by giving them all that humans need, you know, academically, socially, emotionally, relationally. So we, as a team at Del Lago, we learn to, to center the student. We have this, um, 
sort of motto that we always bring up in our staff meetings, keep the main thing, the main thing. And for us, the main thing is knowing our students well and meeting them where they are. Um, And so that's how we work towards educational and social justice for our students. Well, the idea of social justice, I mean, I can just imagine with everything you've been through, you know, when you were young and also going through school and then that first job you had, seeing how it just didn't seem fair. I mean, I just don't think it's fair when kids are told they are failure and that they're not going to pass. They'll never go on with their life or, you know, whatever. I just think it's really amazing that DeLago is taking it this way. So, I mean, doesn't social, it's, it's social justice and personalization. It's not personalized learning. It's not just alone. Yes. And, and I think when we, as school institutions, try to make decisions for reasons like efficiency, um, it's important to build a staff culture like the one that we have, where someone's always going to come back with, but what's best for the kids? You know, and sometimes an institution, an organization of education can still have an efficient solution, um, but only when efficiency is what the kids need, right? Um, other times we have to be able to just step back and say, yeah, you know what? We're just going to have to keep doing the hard work because efficient or not, this is the right work for our students. Wow. I'm just sitting in here, just kind of my mind is going because this idea of, you know, I, people talk about personalized learning and, and it seems to be top down and what it's what the teacher's doing to the students more. <laughs> and, or even with the technology, since you, you know, were an ed tech teacher also, it's more uh, from what you're saying at DeLago, it's everything is around the needs of the student. They're directing it. Wow, I love it. So I always ask people, actually, this is new because I'm starting to go into the why more. And it seems like you're living your why, but can you kind of explain like the big why for you? As I mentioned earlier, school changed my life. I look at some of the friends and family that I had growing up um, from the same and similar home situations. Um, who had very different life outcomes or ended up in the same place, but took a really long time, right? With a lot of detours. So um, school working for me changed my life. Like I mentioned, when home was unsafe, school was safe. When I was homeless, school welcomed me. They didn't know I was homeless, but they welcomed me. When I lost my brother, school gave me a second chance. But school doesn't do that for everyone. And I am acutely aware that school didn't even intentionally do it for me. I just happened to fit into the mold. So I want to contribute to transforming our education system in such a way that schools see every child and give them what they need so that they are empowered to change their own lives. Um, I believe in education. I I know that there are flaws in our traditional systems, um, but I don't think that we're beyond saving. I think that through the ingenuity of educators and the resilience of youth, education can still save society and it can still save kids. Um, so I'm just, I'm passionate about providing young people opportunities to have a voice in their own education. Wow. <laughs> I, I just think you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Knowing what you, all the things that you've gone through, I don't know if people realize that what we all have struggles, but it's how like you said, the schools provided a safe space, but they also were encouraging you to become the best you. 
you took that on. And a lot of kids don't have that opportunity. So I'm just so grateful to know you. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry to end this because it's, I feel like I really got to know you well. I I just, this is just wonderful. And um, we'll put together a blog post with some of the resources you have and get share your life with people and keep sharing. This is amazing. The story of DeLago Academy, what you're doing with personalized learning and social justice. Thank we need you more so of this. much. Thank you yes. so much. Everybody needs to get on board. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, this is why I do my podcast. I said I'd find people like you, but I, boy, I just am so honored that you joined me today. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, Carissa. Thank you so much, Barbara. This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Carissa Duran. Check out the blog post and podcast about Carissa on my website with a story on why personalized learning is an act of justice. You can subscribe to iTunes and the other platforms listed to listen to her podcast and all the other podcasts from anywhere at any time. When you subscribe to my website, barbarabray.net, you receive announcements, updates, new podcasts and posts, and exciting new information about my book, Define Your Why. That is launching February 2020. Look for the book study, resources, and my team and I are talking about a new podcast around the why. You see, your stories, feedback, and reviews have helped me define my why. So I know that what's exciting about this book is not only that you get to tell your story and we finally get to hear your story, but also you're guiding people through through different uh, brainstorming exercises in order to help define your why. I wanted to hear if you have uh, any particular uh, reflection or exercise that you ask of your readers that you're particularly excited about. Oh, gosh, there's so many, but um, one I do every day, <laughs> and it's so crazy, but it's a mindfulness strategy I learned when you're really... T- going crazy and you can't calm down you just blow on your thumb i'm sorry what (laughs) you blow on your thumb in the cool air you just hold your breath and okay so you don't like you don't like hold your thumb in your mouth it's not like you're trying to blow up a balloon it's more like you're blowing out a candle that would be on your thumb just keep blowing on it slowly and and pretty soon you're calming down because the cool air on your thumb calms your it calms you down all over it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying that i didn't realize the book has so many uh simple and peculiar tips and tricks i love it well we'll, i'll give some every time how's that (laughs) i love it i love it